You are listening to Keystone Stock Talk Podcast, episode 109. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment, and show notes are found at www.keystocks.com. Come back often, and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at Keystocks and on Facebook or via our 24-hour streaming radio station, pennystocks.fm. And keep submitting your stocks via the usual social channels or at our website, keystocks.com, for our Your Stock Our Take segment. And we just might review your stock in an upcoming show and let you know if it is a buy, sell, or hold. This week, we'll begin by briefly touching on an article detailing how, and I quote, subprime Canadian borrowers are weathering the crisis just fine. We will talk about how Joe Biden's tax plan could affect the markets, and I'll give you one positive bit of news that we saw out there. There's more than one positive, but we'll give you one. In our Your Stock, Our Take segment, we take a look at three interesting companies. The first, Gatekeeper Systems, GSI, on the TSX Venture, a provider of intelligent video solutions for public transport and smart cities. We also have two stars that we're going to look at for listeners this week. The first should be no stranger to Keystone's clients being the first cannabis stock related uh, stock that we ever recommended just in December and January of this past year. The company True Leave Cannabis Inc., symbol T-R-U-L on the CNX, is a vertically integrated seed-to-sale company and the first and largest fully licensed medical cannabis company in the state of Florida. Truly, shares have surged 30% in the past week. We'll let you know why. Our second star is Nextech AR Solutions Corp., symbol N-T-A-R on the CSX. This past week, the company's shares were up 70%. The company develops and operates augmented reality solutions. We let you know if uh, the current rise in the share price will continue or if if it's an opportunity going forward or potentially a dangerous investment at present. Welcome, Aaron and Brennan. How are you guys doing? Good. Doing good. Doing good. How are you, Ryan? I'm doing very well. Very well. Just came back from a dentist appointment the first time in there. Uh, It's uh, very... It's a different experience, but uh, uh, you know, it felt uh, it felt good. It felt like everything was relatively safe in there. Everybody's in their hazmat suits, which is a good thing, including yourself. I was uh, wearing a, a full body hazmat suit on the way in there, which is what I do. I, I did that before COVID, though, so that's just me going out in public. Now, um, let's. Can we get to the positive bit of news first here? Like, it's it's nice to do that. We see a lot of negative news out there. Um, I. One thing that I big on, I think Keystone is generally, is financial edu- education for our youth. And we also also think, and I also think, that um, that we should be in our schools educating kids on the tech of tomorrow. So the Ontario government came out this past week with some real positive steps in this regard. Premier Doug Ford shared uh, details of new Ontario's Ontario's new math curriculum on June 23rd. It got some big updates, one to eight, starting in September. Most notably, the change includes coding skills and financial terms starting as young as grade one. 
Um, they, in terms of uh, skills, in terms of the digital world, they were learning in grade one units of data storage, such as kilobytes and megabytes uh, as standard to the curriculum. Um, students will also learn vital personal finance skills. Uh, as per the CTV news story, these will begin with uh, basics like coins and bills, identifying them, calculating them for purchase. Uh, then in starting grade four, they will look at the uh, importance of spending and saving their money. Saving, I would put, would be key there. Grade five, they will talk about and learn about budgeting. In grade six, they will learn and understand financial planning. I mean, I think those are great things uh, to start at an early age. I do see some people out there that just don't seem to have a basic grasp on financial literacy. Uh, if we could teach that early in school, Ling, uh, I think we could prevent some people getting into trouble in their, uh, you know, early to their late teens to early twenties when they get into some debt situations that they should have not gotten into. Just teaching a little bit of basic financial literacy is a good literacy is a good thing, and I hope that happens across the country. Well, it's it's certainly not going to hurt. I mean, I no. remember when I went to high school, we had uh, a class called consumer ed which essentially did that. But we didn't touch on that until grade 11, grade 12. And yes. I actually remember long, this being a late. good class, but um, it was just too little too late, right? So having this as a core subject, as long as they're you know, providing good education and making good points, I, I mean, I think is, is, uh, is incredible. But, you know, counting uh, coins and bills, I don't know who does that anymore. <laughs> I did, as I was reading through that part of it, I said, well, coins and identifying the penny. Well, the penny's like gone the way of the dodo bird. So I'm not sure we should be That's looking at that. history class, right? I, I hope they bring in some digital currencies and, and, or at least, you know, I, I'm sure they will. I mean, I'd hope they would uh, because, uh, you know, we need... A little bit more forward thinking than just identifying a dollar bill or there is no dollar bill anymore what am i saying the loony and the toony i think we need to uh the, the real i mean I, I think talking about credit talking about um you know just a basic savings account and just how much you know looking at putting savings aside and budgeting for yourself all of those things if we start in five six you know with the basic terms when they start but grades five and six if you start with that uh, it would leave people far better equipped to uh, deal with their financial system go and their financial future going forward. Um, you know, I, like we with we have a 14 year old and we've talked to him about that since he was you know like five. So like it just you have to and he does understand those things. So uh, and you hope that that serves him well going forward. But it would be nice to see it happening in the school as well, where they have uh, you know they have the chance to do that. So, of course, Ryan, when you and I went to high school, that's back when people were getting around in horse and carriage. Yeah. Um, but I want to hear from the young guy. It's only been a couple years since he's been uh, he's been in high school. So what what were they teaching to you back then, Brennan, about things like personal finance and and technology and coding? Truly not enough, not yeah. enough. Like I, I really can't even think of anything, you know, personally or personal finance based that we learned in school. Um, but I've got a little bit of a score of a story that I did want to bring up here. Uh, in high school, they actually, um, the school board decided to bring in the opportunity where kids could, uh, 
take a, an accounting class. Um, so myself, knowing that I, I kind of like business, I ended up taking this intro to accounting class. In the first year, uh, there was probably about 15 people in the class. Um, and it was good. You know, I learned about uh, assets equals liabilities and equity, uh, which was great. You know, gave me a good foundation. But the following year, I took the, the second level of the class. And I was honestly the only kid in the class. Uh, and we had probably about a graduating class of 100, uh, of 100 people. So out of the 100 people, I was the only one in this class. And it's the first time that's ever happened to me. Um, but yeah, it's, it's funny that you got uh, some real one-on-one -on -one there though, right? Like the really got I, I some did. intense one-on-one, -on -one. but no, but that either the teacher teaching it in the previous year didn't do a great job with the material or, you know, you really didn't keep the interest of the, the students there or something, but yeah, it is pretty sad that. Uh, only one student wanted to go on. But if you just make it mandatory, I think that's what, you know, is being done here. And you have to, you know, I hope they make it engaging, you know, and do budgeting, mm -hmm. you know, because I think that you could make it fun, um, relatively speaking. And, uh, and you know, and I mean, the consumer ed, like we had some basic education then but like aaron said it started too late started early get it drilled into the heads of um you know students and i think it'll serve us well uh going forward so let's let's look at the article aaron brought this to our attention uh, it was an article on bnm bnn bloomberg i believe subprime canadian borrowers are weathering the crisis just fine well i think aaron's got a few thoughts on that i do as well, well. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm glad to hear that, that they are weathering the crisis just fine. But I mean, I think that we also have to put this into context of all of the financial supports that people have been getting through the pandemic as well. And the fact that these financial supports have to wind down uh, eventually. So we have, of course, CERB. We have um, different rental, at least in British Columbia. Um, we have uh, rental supplements. Uh, there's other there's other financial supports. People have been able to defer loan payments, mortgage payments. So there's been a lot of support over the past couple months for people. And given all those supports in place, I don't think that we would really expect that people would be in the subprime area or in, in, in any area of the economy would be uh, under that much financial pressure. Obviously, this is this this depends on on the individual. I mean, if you were making, you know, one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year, and now you're making nothing from your job, then CERB is not really gonna gonna fill up a lot of that gap. But um, for most people, for most working class people, it it's it's a big contribution. So what I'm worried about more is not what has happened over the past couple of months, but what is going to happen um, over the next one to two years. So one of the things from this article is they did quote a company, uh, GoEasy, which is a company we have under coverage. And GoEasy is a subprime consumer loan company, so they're right at the forefront of this. And they say that they, uh, they're, re they're reporting stable or falling delinquencies and that deferrals, loan deferrals, have now returned to pre-pandemic levels. Um, but we still have all these financial supports in place, like the CERB, as well as an economy which is starting to recover somewhat as we've opened things up through the summer. Now, um, just as an example, banks started to allow people to defer their mortgages around and their loan payments around March um, for up to six months. Well, those deferrals are going to end in September, October. 
Uh, and it's, it's not clear if the banks are going to be able to continue to allow people to defer after that. So if we come into a situation in the fall here where uh, the numbers of COVID start to spike up again, maybe we have to start locking the economy down again. Um, and, you know, some of these financial supports won't be as generous as they were in the past. That's where I really f see some financial uncertainty and, and financial troubles upcoming. So I'm really looking at the fall period here to see what's going to happen as these mortgage deferrals come off. As long as the healthcare crisis continues to be managed um, and we're able to open up the economy, then I think that that's, that's you know, things should be fine. However, if, if we're in a situation where we get into the fall, we get into the winter, and we're right back to where we were in March, April, um, that's where I really think that, uh, that, that we're going we're, we're gonna to start to experience some, some issues here because we, we have already seen the cost of these financial supports as necessary as they were when you're telling people not to leave their house. There's a major cost to it, and you can't just keep continuing on in perpetuity. So um, good to see, but you know we're 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 not out of the we're not out of the woods yet. Yeah, for sure. And you you got two sides: individual households receiving uh, receiving aid, uh, and when that cuts off, you know we I, I hasten I hasten to guess what could happen to some of the de delinquencies here. But there's also like some of these companies, the individual companies that are also getting payroll subsidies as well on that side that are you know helping out their business as well i mean at some point there has to be some leadership in this country and i'm not sure if we have it but um there's has to be some leadership out there that says okay this is going to stock people have to start getting back to work you know in the fall or you know right now getting back to work opening up if you're opening up the country you got to start getting back to work if the conditions are safe and, uh, you know, that has to be somebody having, a, you know, the prime minister has to have a tough conversation with the country and says, you know, and states that you have to get back to work. We cannot keep funding and providing this support and aid to the entire country or big pockets of the country. So, I mean, those decisions will have to be made. They'll have to be strong leadership. If we have that, we will see going forward and then we'll see uh, what happens to the general economy when the spending, the aid is pulled back. Certainly very easy to write a bunch of checks when you don't have to worry yes. about the consequences. And once again, I'm not saying that, that those financial supports weren't necessary, but I do know for a fact that there are a lot of people out there who are able to go back to work and aren't because they're continuing to receive these, these, these financial supports. So there's a major cost to this. And true leadership, as you said, Ryan, is finding a way to go back to some type of a semblance of a normal economy yes and and it won't you know it's very easy to dole out the money it's hard to start taking it back and it'll take true leadership to do that and we'll see if we can we have that hopefully we will have that in this country you sound very optimistic oh <laughs> well, you know me so now let's look at uh joe biden's tax plan we're just going to really briefly touch on this just some of the um some of the tax increases that joe biden in the u.s is uh, proposing um, and and whether or not they would have a significant effect, negative or positive, likely negative on the U.S. markets. Now, he's proposing to raise taxes on work, investment, small business, energy producers, and many corporations. Uh, many would say back to levels uh, from the 1970s. That may be a bit high, but 
you know, it's really built on the argument that the the rich, the 1%, the top 10%, whatever you want to call them, don't pay their fair share. That is what their tax plan is built on. So let's just look at some of the numbers here. Um, currently, the cor- corporate tax rate in the U.S. is 21%. Under Biden's plan, it goes up to 28%. The small business income tax rate, 37%, up to 39.6%. Income and payroll tax at 37% right now goes to 51%. Capital gains tax from 23.8% up to 39.6, significant there. And there's also a proposed death tax on unsold stock. It's now 0% in the U.S., up to 40%. So a very significant change there. Now, if you have, if those type of tax consequences were to go forward, I would say that it would be significantly negative for the U.S. market. Whether or not they can actually ram through these type of tax reform is another question, but we're just looking at the raw numbers here. Um, if these occur, you know, it, it's certainly not a positive for the markets. There is some other part of the tax plan that are, are providing incentives for the green industry and uh, and, and, you know, there's higher tax rates like we talked about for the energy industry, uh, the traditional energy industries, um, trying to pick industries on which uh, to grow going forward, I think, is always a, a dangerous pass for a government as uh, or any bureaucracy as they tend to not get things right over the long term. Um, I would say right now the free market is doing a great job of allocating towards green. Uh, what is the, we talked about Tesla last week. It is now the, by market cap, the largest auto producer. And you, many would call it, you know, with electric cars, the cleaner option in that area. Um, it, Tesla could go out there and raise billions of dollars right now when its share price is likely, I would say, overvalued in the near term. It could raise that money. A ton more capital could go into a green industry. You see the, you see energy producers out there. We're doing a green energy producer uh, report coming up. Even in Canada, uh, the premium valuations on greener energy producers relative to the traditional or uh, more dirty, you would call it, energy producers is very significant, the premium on those green companies. So the markets, the free markets are speaking towards where you can easily raise capital is in those endeavors where you can't is on this side where there's a lot of uh, carbon footprint. So I think the markets are working quite well. I think, you know, when you're going and trying to have a government pick, cherry pick which industries to invest in, it is a dangerous thing going forward. So any comments on that, guys? Well, it's an interesting take. Uh, I I don't like to get too much into the politics of it, but I would – one, be skeptical that Biden, if he's elected, would be able to push that tax plan through, um, even if he wanted to. Uh, when when Trump pushed his through, of course, the Republicans had control of the Senate and the House. Um, I would also be a little get, bit skeptical that he actually wants to push it through, because I think that a lot of the same donors that give money to the Republicans also give money to, to the Democrats and Biden's campaign and are incentivized to keep taxes low. But I, I understand what he's doing. I mean, he was probably the most centrist and moderate of all of the candidates to take to to um, be the 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 
Democratic candidate for president, um, but he's also trying to appeal to some of the more uh, left-wing element of his party as well by saying, like, no, we believe we're going to still, you know, go forward with this campaign where the rich are not paying enough and we're going to tax them. Um, and then, of course, other people will pay more tax too. I personally, myself, I don't know if it's the smartest choice to do that. I think you really have to tread very lightly when you're talking about taxes because I don't know if anybody has ever been elected on a platform of higher taxes before. I mean, that's a pretty tough platform to push. And of course, he's going to say, you know, it's just the rich. But um, in, in this modern day social media driven world, uh, it really comes down to clips and uh, sound bites. And if he's up there talking about higher taxes, that's going to, whether he's talking about the rich or not, I mean, there's a lot of taxation that he's talking about there. That's going to give the Republicans a lot of ammuni ammunition to get those sound bites and just basically paint him as somebody who's going to derail um, an economic recovery and take more money off of people's, people's paychecks. So I don't like to get too political. My first thought is that you know, even if he wanted to push these things through, I think he, he should be very careful about how he talks about higher taxes because it's generally just not something that uh, that I think is very popular amongst Americans. Yeah, no, I agree. And, uh, you know, we'll see if you can get elected on a um, increased taxes uh, type platform. I, I know I can see how it's going to be framed, taxing, making the rich pay their fair share. But you do have increases in a number of other ways, like the capital gains tax, which hurts just regular investors across the country, across the U.S. And, you know, increase in small business tax that hurts, you know, mom and pop small businesses as well. Um, I, I just, for in my opinion, I, I'd love to have lower taxes and higher consumption tax. I don't understand why that isn't talked about at all. Uh, I don't see that as as something that is even raised. And, and then, like, if you want to consume, you're going to get taxed higher. Like a high, I'm talking about lower taxes, lower uh, corporate or income tax rates, personal income tax rates, and then higher consumption tax. So if you want to consume, you get taxed more. Certainly, and um, I. I don't know that I don't even see that as a narrative or a discussion. No, which is which is interesting because in North America, when you look at the more socialist elements, um, they always are promoting higher corporate taxes, higher income yeah. taxes for the higher tax brackets, and they tend to be very much against any type of of a VAT or a consumption tax like uh, like GST, for instance, that we have here in Canada. But then they will also point to countries like Sweden. Um, as as examples of great socialist success stories, um, which should be emulated. And I, I would argue that Sweden is a socialist country. Actually, it's not. It's very much a, a capitalist country. It's a social democracy, a lot like we have here in Canada, but it is capitalist. Um, but if you look, and I've looked at the tax rates, if you look at their corporate tax rates, they're actually very comparable to what you have here in Canada. Um, but where they have much higher tax is at the consumption level. They have very high VATs, I believe up to 40% in some cases. And um, that's that's a major source of their tax revenue is to go after consumption and not so much at the corporate level. So if you want to use them as as an example of a success story, then you know, you're certainly not following their lead with with, uh, yeah, and there's ma many countries in Europe that have that structure, and it gets argued, I think, incorrectly here by 
the more socialist element uh, uh, throughout North America. You know, they reference some of those countries in Europe that have uh, they, they, that have higher taxes or, or that, that have or they believe are more socialist type economies. And and actually they have very business friendly type tax situations and personal tax rates. They just have higher VAT or consumption type taxes. And that is not brought up. I don't hear that anywhere in the arguments. Uh, I mean, I think that is a, a better way to go um, uh, in terms of uh, in terms of having a taxation regime. But I'll, I'll bring one um, point up, and, and this is probably something we should discuss on another podcast. Um, but if anybody's listening, wants to send in an email, if they have anything to add to this, what you're talking about truly socialist countries, and socialism is very hard to define. But when you're talking about a truly socialist country, I cannot think of a single example where a truly socialist country, whether socialism or communism, has actually brought people out of poverty in a a substantial way. Whereas capitalism has. I mean, highly imperfect, needs to necessarily, certainly there's things that, that can be improved, but capitalism has brought people out of poverty. I can't think of any socialist examples whereby that has been the case if somebody yeah, if anybody can email that please, in send it yes. in and tweet maybe us we on can it. discuss this yeah. on on yeah. another show yeah for sure okay well let's uh quickly move to our your stock our tape it's time we answer a question on your stock in a little segment we like to call your stock our tape buy sell or hold it's on gatekeeper systems inc The question comes in via Sandy on uh, email here. Great results for Gatekeeper Systems recently. Uh, Is it a buy now? Thanks, Sandy, for that. Gatekeeper Systems, GSI and the TSX Venture. Um, Now, what does the company do? Gatekeeper engineers, manufactures, and distributes industry-leading high-definition mobile video surveillance and safety solutions for a range of markets, including school districts, law enforcement, public transit, as well as the U.S. military and Coast Guard. Now, let's look at the recent financials for the company. For both the three and nine months uh, of this current fiscal year, they are highest in the company's history at $5.6 million and $12.6 million, respectively. That's growth rates of 31 and 42%. Net income came in at uh, for the three months 1.3 million, for the nine months 1.42 million. That's 115 and 371% growth rates respectively. Uh, we note that annual recurring revenue for the nine months is around 1.8 million, representing 14% of revenue. So they're trying to stress that recurring revenue. Our take here, the the growth in fiscal and year-to-date, primarily driven by the Q3 results, has been impressive. We appreciate the move towards a recurring uh, revenue base, albeit it is still small at 14% of total revenues. Historically, with Gatekeeper, due to the contract-driven nature of the business, quarterly results have been lumpy, moving in and out of profitability. Now, we note in its last quarter, which was strong, non-operational items uh, benefited earnings, including around 247000 in Canadian emergency wage subsidy, subsidy we saw in the quarter, and over 100000 in foreign currency translation difference. So between three hundred and fifty and 400000 of non-operating benefits directly to net income the company did not pay any taxes in the quarter as well due to past losses 
Uh, the companies, now if we look at the past eight quarters of the company, it has posted four quarterly losses and four quarterly profits. Uh, so, you know, lumpy, like we said. Well, each of the last four quarters have been either profitable or break even. Uh, Q3 was the real breakthrough here and accounted for over 80% of net income for the past year. Gatekeeper has produced roughly one and a half cents in EPS or earnings per share over the last 12 months, the bulk of which, like we said, was in Q3. It trades at roughly 30 times this figure over its last 12 months. It is not cheap given the lumpy history. If it can smooth out some of these earnings and add to its recurring revenue base, we would become significantly more interested. Until then, we would just monitor the stock. It's an interesting business but it is trading at 30 times trailing and right now is a company that has a history of lumpy profitability. So we would, again, just monitor the business. And that, that lumpy profitability is always something that's concerning to us, particularly for some of these small and micro cap companies. And anybody who's been following Keystone's research knows that our, our very minimum criteria for even really going far into researching a stock is that that company is producing profitability. But when we say profitability, we don't necessarily mean in one quarter or in one year. Uh, we, we, we need to have good, reasonable assurance that this is sustainable profitability because we've seen a lot of businesses post a good quarter, post a good year, and then we see profitability and revenue fall right off the table uh, in the next period. Whereas there's no specific formula that can guarantee you if that profitability is going to be sustainable. But you really have to understand the business, what is driving performance, and then look at the outlook, look at the market, and then make your assessment from there. But yeah, when you're looking at a lumpy business that's trading the high valuation, that's that's concerning. Yeah, and, and Gatekeeper, like it does appear to be trending in the right directions. If you could take that just over one cent in earnings they made in the last quarter, and if they made that every quarter, you know, just over four, four and a half cents for the year, they'd be trading at 10 times earnings. They'd have growth. It would look like a company, you know, they have a reasonable balance sheet. There's a decent cash position and uh, no real debt. So those things would check off the boxes. But what you do see, you look back at their last eight quarters, four profitable, four not profitable. Um, you know, it, we have concerns whether or not this was uh, this quarter was more of an anomaly. Uh, they talk about their backlog going forward. They talk about it being solid, uh, but it's we're not given a, a we're not given clear guidance on the business, which suggests to me that management either believes they continue to be lumpy or that you know it's just difficult to predict uh, on a quarter to quarter or even on an annual basis where they will be in terms of earnings. If we had full guidance for this year, next year, going forward, then the markets obviously could uh, anticipate that and probably be trading higher if it was very positive. But, you know, that isn't there right now. We continue to monitor the company. That last quarter was solid. But like Aaron said, consistent profitability is what really drives share price growth over the long term. Uh, Gatekeeper has a history of some um, lumpy profitability. So yeah, it should trade at a discount to the market, given the fact that profitability has been lumpy. Now let's look at one company that is actually producing relatively consistent profitability. That's a, an amazing segue there. Our star from our stars and dogs segment. It's time for this week's star. star. Our first star is Trulieve Cannabis Corp. Again, no stranger to Keystone clients, having been a recommendation at the start of this year. Aaron, I'll let you take that one. 
Excellent. Thank you, Ryan. So True Leaf Cannabis, the symbol is T-R-U-L on the Canadian exchange. It's trading at a price today at $22.23. It's a $2.5 billion market cap company. So what do they do? True Leaf Cannabis is a US-based, vertically integrated and fully licensed medical marijuana company. This means that the company is involved in cultivating, processing and retailing cannabis and related products. The company is the largest medical cannabis company in the state of Florida and has recently expanded into additional markets. TrueLeave is a recommendation of Keystone and it's been our top cannabis recommendation since we initially picked up coverage on the stock back in November of 2019 at $16 per share. TrueLeave is up 28% over the past week as most of the rest of the cannabis sector continues to struggle. So what's driving the stock? There, hasn't, there wasn't any specific news for True Leave that's driven the share price over the past week. However, last week, there was an announcement that a joint Joe Biden-Bernie Sanders task force has recommended rescheduling marijuana on a fed, federal basis, legalizing medical marijuana nationwide, and allowing states to decide about recreational cannabis. There's certainly some speculation built into the move up in the share price over the past week as no actual regular regulatory changes have been enacted yet. And depending on who wins the upcoming election, uh, that may not happen anytime soon. However, even before last week, TrueLeave was outperforming the sector as the only profitable cannabis producer. So why did Keystone recommend TrueLeave originally? Our rationale for recommending TrueLeave last year essentially came down to two things profitability, and market potential. Like most people, we were following the cannabis sector closely for years before legalization occurred here in Canada. We published a very comprehensive report in 2018 on the sector and noticed two very troubling features. First, the market in Canada was hugely oversaturated with licensed producers. And secondly, none of the companies were even close to profitability. So based on these two things, we decided not to make any recommendations at that time. A year later, in 2019, we published another sector report and found that there had been little to no improvement in the profitability or supply-demand features of the market, at least up here in Canada. All of the Canadian producers continued to burn through massive amounts of cash and were too speculative for us to recommend. But we did take notice of TrueLeave, which was the only profitable company listed in Canada, although its operations were in the United States. The company had a market-leading position, growth, and proven profitability, and these were the features that made it stand out from the other 200 companies that we were, we were reviewing at the time. Since that, the time that the report was released, we've seen a near 40% move up in TrueLeave shares as the rest of the cannabis sector has generally exhibited atrocious performance, and past leaders like Aurora Cannabis and Tilray being down over 60%. As always, we're reviewing TrueLeave in the context of the recent share price gains, financial performance, and future outlook, and we will be providing updates to clients. Yeah, no, it's a great summary, and uh, you know, I think the research we did into this segment uh, has really served our clients well uh, for a couple of years, really avoiding uh, some of the losses there, and then identifying, you know, a, a very strong what appears to be a very strong U.S. based uh, option to invest in this segment. And uh, the gains have been there this year. And, uh, you know, we continue to see uh, we continue to see and continue to update our, our clients on TrueLeave going forward. The nice thing, too, that I also want to say is just that, you know, 
you guys didn't get the fear of missing out, you know, for clients as so many clients were, were asking, you know, what about a cannabis stock? What about a cannabis stock? You know, you guys looked at the fundamentals, saw tons and tons of cannabis companies with just ridiculous guidance. And, you know, and you didn't, you know, just jump into the sector. You understood that, you know, uh, a lot of the sector was overvalued at the time and you needed to see, you know, an, an actual company producing um, on a, or with a bottom line, you know? Um, so yeah, just wanted to add yeah. my two cents there. You know, we just, despite all the hue and cry for whatever sector it is, the whatever hot sector of the day, um, we're not going to recommend a company just to have exposure to what may, like we said, be a hot sector. It has to have earnings. It has to have cash flow and trade at reasonable valuations. And that's, what's going to drive, uh, your stock price appreciation over the long term. On the flip side as well, what we're trying to do is prevent the downside uh, because if you, if you get that combination of good solid growth, good solid earnings and cash flow and reasonable valuations um, and, and you're investing based on that rather than just hype, uh, you are you're limiting your downside to, an, to a degree if you have 15 or 25 of those type of stocks that fit that criteria in your portfolio. Uh, if you invest on other criteria, hot sectors, uh, flavor of the day, um, it's you may get one or two winners. You know you're going to have a significant amount of losers in your portfolio, and uh, they, those couple winners won't make up for the uh, the the losers in your portfolio. So I just investing based on that criteria leads us to a good value in this segment. Now, if Trueleaf was another business and had the same relative financials that Trulieve did, that they'd probably be a recommendation given the growth going forward. Um, we didn't just recommend Trulieve because it's a cannabis company. It is because, of, again, we stress this all the time, the underlying fundamentals that match our criteria. And we won't stray from those to recommend a company in a hot sector. So let's finally get to our final star of the week here. From our Stars and Dogs segment, it's time for this week's Star. 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 Brennan, uh, you have that. It's on uh, a company also listed on the CSX, I believe, right? Um, I'm just trying to pull up the company here. It's Next Tech AR Solutions Corp, symbol NTAR on the CSE or CSX. Yeah, and again, you know, it, this, uh, like speaking about kind of the flavor of the day, um, just with, uh, you know, the cannabis stocks there, this is kind of another good segue as this stock is, you know, sort of the flavor of the day. Uh, if, if you want to say. Uh, so yes, Next Tech AR Solutions Corp, uh, ticker symbol NTAR on the CSX, currently trading at a price of around $9.81 and has a market cap of $622 million. So Next Tech AR Solutions Corp develops and operates augmented reality solutions. Uh, and the company is pursuing four verticals, which include e-commerce, uh, and it recently actually came out with an app, um, 3D augmented reality advertising, as well as augmented reality for events, and its fourth segment, Hollywood Studios. Uh, so that's more just for entertainment purposes. So now looking at the company's performance, the stock was up 70% in the last week and up over 460% in the past three months. Now, what's driving the stock here? After launching its augmented reality platform in late 2019, the company has announced partnerships with numerous companies, including Budweiser and the Dallas Independent School District, which the market seems to be very excited about. 
But in more recent news, on July 8th, the company announced that it had filed uh, to uplist its stock to the NASDAQ capital market. Uh, and it also recently announced it will be launching into video conferencing solutions uh, and that it believed it would be able to expand capabilities in telemedicine, uh, again, getting the market excited. Uh, as you know, this is, of course, the flavor of the day. So taking a look at the uh, the company's financial results for Q1 2020, revenue increased 177% to $2.5 million compared to the same quarter last year. So good growth there. Adjusted EBITDA improved slightly to a loss of $1.29 million from a loss of $1.3 million for the same quarter last year. And basic earnings per share was a loss of $0.02 cents compared to a loss of $0.03 cents. Uh, for um, Q1 of 2019. So now looking at the company's balance sheet, uh, they do have a net cash position of 2.3 million, which is attractive. Uh, the company recently changed their fiscal year end from May 31st to December 31st, so it was difficult to find trailing 12-month revenue figures. But based on the last trailing 12 or trailing 10 months, the company was trading with a trailing price to sales multiple of around 95 times, which is certainly a premium valuation based on its fundamentals. Even if we added those uh, extra three uh, months of revenue, um, or sorry, two months of revenue, uh, it, it would still be a very pricey valuation. Um, you know, and of course, with a technology company here and being the flavor of the day, we are certainly getting a tech valuation in the market. So Nextech AR Solutions seems to show some promise as it has established a few foundational customers and has some revenue to back it up. Augmented reality is certainly the future of marketing via cell phones and e-commerce. I believe that the company could perform well into the future, but this is purely speculation and based on the idea that the company will be able to continue to grow rapidly and actually break into profitability in the future, which there is, of course, no guarantee of. Seeing as the company is not profitable and is trading at an extremely high price to sales multiple, we wouldn't recommend the stock to our clients. We are fundamental value investors, not speculators. With this being said, we will continue to monitor the stock, but its recent share price performance has made it our star of the week. Yeah, I mean, just quickly looking at the the current fundamentals of the business, I mean, I would... Uh I mean, there's a lot of, I would, well, first I'd say management should raise capital ASAP. Um, there's, they've come out with announcements on video calls, telemedicine. It appears to be a great deal of buzzwords surrounding the company. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, the, the, the revenue base right now is very low. The multiples off of that are very high. Um, you know, again, it's at attacking a, a bunch of segments here, it appears, that are, you know, based on augmented reality but you know a bunch of segments that are definitely hot um you know for us it do, doesn't meet our minimum criteria and like this company just i think in june or july raised money at two dollars and ten cents so did a private placement at that price so uh, management believed that that was a good point to raise money i think it's past nine dollars now so the business has not fundamentally changed much since then so um, I'm not sure the market should be rewarding this company with that type of valuation. Near term. Agreed. Okay, Aaron doesn't have much to say on that one. I think that about sums well, up. Not much Brennan to dig the into. Not, profitable, not so much to dig into. I, uh, as, I, as I've said many times in the past, once I hear that it's not even profitable, I, 
just swipe left. I don't have much to say. Aaron, Aaron actually <laughs> dozed off there once he heard that. He's gone. It's over. Yeah, oh, I did. I figured, well, this is a great time yeah, for me to true. take a nap. So it's the only time you have during the day, right? Now so. I feel refreshed. On, on that note, as we fall asleep at the end of this podcast, let's let's um, encourage you to keep your questions coming into our Your Stock, Our Take segments uh, and our Ask Us Anything. Uh, keep your comments on there. Rate us and review us on uh, uh, what is it? Po- our podcast on iTunes, I believe. And uh, keep subscribing to our podcast. We wish you all out there stay safe and profitable investing. Profitable investing. Thanks, everyone.